Randall Woodfield grew up in a beautiful town with a picture-perfect family and was on track to become an All-American pro football player for the beloved Green Bay Packers. He was also on track to become one of America's most horrific serial killers. We are your hosts, Helen Allen and Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. Randall Woodfield grew up in a beautiful beachside town in Oregon. He had a picture-perfect family and a picture-perfect life. His dad was an executive at a phone company, and his mom was a stay-at-home mom. He also had two sisters that went on to become very successful. One was a lawyer, and one was a doctor. And he was just kind of like one of those guys who did really well in school and was still able to, like, play a sport every season. So just very picture-perfect. And let me just take a guess that he does something really horrific to mess this all up. Yep, you got it. One night, Randall is, like, on this bridge in his hometown, and he exposes himself to a group of teenage girls. I just can't. I Gross. On so many levels of gross, gross, gross. For why? For what? Why? Why did he do this? Ugh, I know. I know. Like, sorry I'm laughing, because I just cannot wrap my head around just, like, exposing yourself unwarranted to people like how does that not feel embarrassing to him like it's crazy that people probably reacted being like ew and that just like gets him off and honestly that's what just makes it so much more twisted like you can't see me right now but I'm gagging mouth ajar it's it's gross I know right so obviously his parents are like hmm, uh, we should get help for our kid who, you know, is otherwise really normal. So they put him in therapy. You have to think that, like, therapy back then for a teenage guy was just not something that was acceptable to society. So I'm sure that part of them wanting to get him therapy was just trying to, like, get a quick fix because, you know, they're comparing him to his sisters who did really well in life. One was a doctor. One was a lawyer. What does he get to do? Flash people for a living? But, you know, (laughs) this wouldn't really be a true crime podcast if the therapy helped, now would it? Yeah, so basically the therapist was just like, yeah, no, this is, like, totally normal for a young kid exploring his sexuality, and boys will be boys. I Did you guys hear that groan loud enough? Because I can can do it louder, because I hate that saying, I hate that phrase, because there's a huge difference between kissing a girl or a guy and exposing yourself to a bunch of teenagers who... I bet you a million dollars did not ask for that. Like, tell me how that is just harmlessly exploring your sexuality. Yeah, I <clears throat> I don't know. Um, you'll come to find that Randall was simply, like, enabled just way too much. And no one ever really, like, condemned him for his behavior. His coaches covered up the arrest from exposing himself on the bridge. His therapist backs him up. And then his parents are just like, okay, cool, great. So we can send him off to college then since see he's super perfect and normal. So after having his record expunged at 18, he attends Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. I mean, that's just not okay. Like, people are covering his ass time and time again. And like you said, he's just going to keep feeling enabled. And 
Mm-hmm. Okay, also side note. <laughs> Why do I feel like this guy is going going to give me serious Ted Bundy vibes? It's actually funny that you say that. Um, because they were both active serial killers in the mid-1970s and basically in the same region. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay, so I hit the nail on the head fully. Great. Mm -hmm. Great. So actually, when Randall was at Treasure Valley Community College, he was caught vandalizing his ex-girlfriend's apartment. But to no surprise, he is let off. Apparently, there was, like, a lack of evidence, which, I mean, don't ask me how, because he was literally caught. I mean, so he continues to get enabled, basically, mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing. Great. Because yeah. that just sets someone up so perfectly for life in the real world. That's fine. Nope. Keep going. Eventually, no. <laughs> Eventually, he transfers to Portland State University, and he is recruited for the fo- fo- the football team. <laughs> He's recruited for the football team, the Vikings. Um, not the the Vikings, the one at Portland State University. <laughs> you get it. Anyway, uh, he, he joins this group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and he does well in college. He's studying to be a PE teacher. Um, and he's also part of a basketball team called the God Squad. All right, pause. <laughs> I mean, I... I was tickled pink when you said Campus Crusade, but the God Squad? I mean, what kind of bootleg Justice League is this? Right? I cannot emphasize enough that I would sincerely not judge being a part of these groups if he didn't end up being a prolific serial killer. Oh, of course. Of course. Anyway, his coaches notice that he's a little off, but he spends a lot of time in their office chatting um and ultimately like they just don't really think much of it because his teammates say that he's like charming with the ladies i don't know there's like mixed reviews on this guy um his roommate caught him one time stealing this like little trinket from a christian bookstore and basically when the roommate was like hey dude why'd you do that randall was just like "Mm, i just wanted to Uh, okay so nothing sketchy about that just a good christian boy Robbing a good Christian bookstore. Right. And then, again, his junior year at college, he flashes a woman in a parking garage. I mean, come on, Randall. I I just already cannot with this guy. I mean, I have a feeling things are just going to get worse from here, but very shitty. Yeah, he's, so, oh, he's yucky. <laughs> very, very yucky so far. Very yucky. He's yucky. He went on to play for the Green Bay Packers in 1974. He was the 428th pick, which is obviously, you know, better than me and you could do. But it is pretty low on the priorities still. Like, they don't even have nearly that many picks now. Um, His teammates say that he, like, wasn't really that strong of a player. And he was seemingly more into the way he looked on the field versus how the way he played. Um, But they did say that he was good with insight and decision-making. And then before the real season even starts, Randall is cut. Um, Green Bay never really officially released a statement saying why, but several sources allude to the fact that it was because he was acting inappropriately. I mean, good move on their part. Go Green Bay Packers. (laughs) Yeah. So then Randall and another teammate who is also cut from the Packers decide to go semi-pro. I'm not even going to waste my time talking about his stint here because he was shortly cut after the first season for quote-unquote off-field concerns. Then in 1975, Randall is arrested after several Portland women were accosted by a knife-wielding man. 
They were forced to perform oral sex, and then they were robbed of their purses. He was sentenced to 10 years after pleading guilty to reduced charges of second-degree robbery. Wait, I'm sorry, second-degree? I mean, he literally had a knife and forced him to perform oral sex. Call me crazy, but I was really hoping for first-degree. I know. And here's the kicker. After not even half his sentence was served, they release him. So he really only ended up serving four years. Cases like these are just really so frustrating to me. Like, of course, there's no one in particular to blame here. But it just makes you think, would people have been spared if they had just had him serve the time for first degree robbery? I mean, that could have made a huge difference. And we'll never know. Yeah, I know. Um, there's just really so many what ifs in this case that just like put me into a tailspin. So I just like can't even go there, honestly. Um, here's when things start to get crazy. <clears throat> On October 9th, 1980, Sherry Ayers, an x-ray technician who went to high school with Randall, was raped and murdered in her apartment in downtown Portland. Her body was found two days later by her fiancé. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Sherry had known Randall since second grade, and they had actually written letters to each other while he was in prison. And it turned out that they both had attended a high school reunion the night that she was murdered. Okay. I mean, I know that's, in the grand scheme of things, maybe not a lot to go off, but it is something. So he must have come up as a suspect, right? Actually, yeah. So Sherry's family knew about the letters, so they gave Randall's name to law enforcement right away. And he was questioned, but he refused to take a polygraph test. And then get this, his blood type didn't match the semen found on her body. I have literally looked for an explanation for this, like, everywhere, but I think it's just got to come down to the fact that DNA technology just wasn't what it is now. So unfortunately, this is just like one of those times that it failed us in the past. Again, so heartbreaking considering this is only his first murder, really. And like, again, through no fault of anyone, he gets away. Seriously. So just seven weeks later on Thanksgiving night, Darcy Fix's dad is waiting to show or waiting on her to show up for dinner. Um, she doesn't show up, so he goes to her house to check on her. He opens the door to the house, only to find Darcy and her boyfriend lying dead. She had been sexually assaulted, and the two of them were bound by their hands and feet and gagged. Then they were killed execution style. I, I know. Just... Darcy worked in a bank, and Douglas, her boyfriend, was a college student looking to go into the army in the near future. They were going to get married, they had dated in high school, and then they rekindled their relationship later, and they were just, like, madly in love with each other. So they really had their whole life ahead of them. Like, that is just so sad. And I can't even begin to, like, imagine being her dad and walking in on what is surely, like, a traumatizing sight. Did Randall ever come up in the investigation, though? I mean, there's small link between them well yes so actually darcy had dated one of randall's friends in college so he was questioned when she was murdered because of their ties 
But ultimately, he just, like, wasn't connected to the crime, and there were no witnesses that observed any loud noises consistent with gunshots or anyone strange, like, coming and going. So that just kind of was the end of that. But something big did pop up in this case. Like what? Well, remember how I said that they were tied up? Yeah. So the police make a specific note. He was tied up using athletic tape. I watched a really good interview. I'll put it in the show links. But basically, the police are like, whoa, we've never seen this done before. And you've got to think, like, there's no way that someone who has never used athletic tape before is just going to, like, count on it being strong enough to tie up victims in a murder. You know, like, you've got to be pretty confident in athletic tape, which means that you're probably using it a good amount. Totally. I mean, when you said he used something particular to tie them up, my mind immediately went to rope, zip ties, you know, something along that line. But athletic tape, that is, that's pretty particular. I mean, you really have to know how to use that if you're like, have that much confidence in it. I would never even go to athletic tape. Like, that's huge. Yeah, absolutely. A few weeks passed then. um, And on December 21st in 1980, um, in Lake Forest Park, Washington, The police get two 911 calls in the course of an hour. The first is an employee of a restaurant. She enters a restroom and behind her, an assailant comes in with a silver gun and sexually assaults her. He tells her to wait five minutes before coming out and then he just leaves. And the second call, just a few minutes away, two women who are getting ready to close a Baskin Robbins are approached by a man who holds up a bag to the counter pulls up a silver revolver, and demands that they put cash into the bag. They do, and then he still attacks them, and he sexually molests one of them. Wait, I'm I'm sorry, I'm just a little confused. So is he, like, de-escalating? He didn't kill these victims, and I thought that was, like, his M.O. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly what this means. You'll see as we go on, Randall is very up and down. He's consistent, however, with sexually assaulting his victims, and the athletic tape also is something that stays consistent. But these victims weren't tied up, though, were they? No, I know. Um, the victims in both attacks, actually, they were not tied up, but they gave very similar descriptions to the police, actually nearly identical, of the assailant. Um, They said it was a young male in his late 20s or early 30s, at or around six feet tall, dark hair, wearing a jacket or a sweatshirt, holding a silver revolver, and wearing a piece of athletic tape across his nose. Oh my, okay, so that he's branding at this point. I mean, he clearly knows how to work with athletic tape, and I guess that's like a signature of his. That's crazy. Yeah. So, just a few weeks later, um, on January 18, 1981, Beth Wilmot and Sherry Hall are cleaning up an office building at night. They have a part-time job cleaning up offices in the evenings to pay for college. And these girls were honestly the best. Like, so thorough and just, like, honorable about their work. And they were just about done when Beth notices um, that they forgot one tiny little thing. So she just like tells Sherry to go out and take the trash out and she'll meet her outside. So Beth goes to finish up the task and she hears Sherry come back inside. I... So thinking it's nothing, Beth goes to see what Sherry might have forgotten and here's a struggle. 
She sees that Sherry is being held at gunpoint by a man and was forced back inside. She is shot. Beth is then spotted by the assailant and is shot twice in the back of the head. Then Sherry makes a noise and the man shoots her again. So at this point, Beth, like, miraculously is not dead, but makes the conscious decision to play dead. Thankfully, the killer then leaves. Through adrenaline and just, like, sheer strength, Beth makes her way to the phone. I mean, she, like, dragged her way to the phone and immediately calls the police. Okay, okay. I I cannot contain myself. I am just floored by our little Beth. I mean, if I were shot in the back of the head twice, I would be done for sure. Beth is, Beth is super, like, how is she still alive at this point? Like, do they well, say anything? Well, actually, yeah, it's actually crazy. Turns out that Beth is just someone with, like, an irregularly thick skull. And it ended up being why she didn't die when someone else was shot, like, twice in the back of the head. They probably would have. I mean, can we just have a whole episode dedicated to Beth and that thick skull girl? Like, <laughs> I know, right? You go. And, and actually... I do want to just make a small note that some sources refer to her as Beth and some refer to her as Lisa Garcia um, because she did end up changing her name. But just like if you or anyone looks into it, don't get confused. That is the same person. Um, Anyway, so the police come within minutes of the phone call and on their way over, they see a sketchy man fitting the description of the suspect, but he was so far away from the crime scene that they basically just like write it off as being impossible. I mean, I just okay, wait. <laughs> I'm sorry, two things. One, the mental strength to work through that trauma and just get to the phone alone makes Beth a hero in my eyes and she should be in all of yours. Two, mm-hmm. I can't like imagine being that cop in a car and just seeing someone who fits the description and just having to drive by because Beth is dying. I mean, she had enough energy to get to the phone but for all they know she's she's not well i mean clearly anyone want to be unwell think we're shot twice in the back of the head you know well yeah and but also the the crazy part really is that like that cop that saw that guy didn't think he was the suspect because he was so far away from the crime scene he was like a more than a mile away from the crime scene so he was like there's no way somebody on foot could have gotten there so fast because I just got that call. So I think if he if Randall hadn't gone so far, then that officer probably would have called for backup being like he's headed this way or something like that, but he couldn't because he he physically thought that was impossible. Oh, that's so, so it's true. just crazy. But anyway, um so Randall used to work at this place, this is kind of switching gears a little. Um Randall used to work at this place called the Faucet. Um, It was a tavern in Portland. He was constantly serving underage girls there. Um, Just a side note. He had a friend there named Chuck Heath. Um, Chuck felt like Randall was a little off, but, you know, I mean, you know how it is with work. Like, work friends are always wildly different from you, but you can get along anyway just because your connection to the job. Anyway, so while working at the faucet... Randall got in trouble serving underage girls, and he asked Chuck to go with him to small claims court and lie about it. So Chuck was like, "Mm, okay, this guy's weird. I'm going to keep my distance. Yeah, I mean, what a weirdo. Thank you to Chuck and 
like someone with some sense. I mean, so many people after hanging out with him were like, yeah, no, this guy's weird, but like, whatever, you know, like listen mm-hmm. to your senses, people. Seriously. So about a month later, Randall throws a Valentine's Day party and no one shows up. <laughs> I know. Chuck goes on to say later in an interview that he actually did get invited to the Valentine's Day party, but he just didn't get the message in time. But I just like to think that no one just wanted to go because Randall's a freak. <laughs> let's keep that narrative. Love a blow to the ego. Let's, let's keep it pushing. Right. Love it. And I think that's honestly exactly what it was. Um, I guess after feeling badly about himself when no one showed up, he reached out to Julie Wrights, an 18-year-old he knew from the faucet because he used to serve her underage. And just, like, put yourself in Julie's shoes because I know people will be like, "Ugh, Julie, don't hang out with him. But, like, he probably seemed cool to her and, like, glamorous in a way because she was just this 18-year-old girl and he was, like, this older guy giving her attention and alcohol. Oh, if anyone is faulting her right now, you are lying to yourself. Speaking from someone who used to be an 18-year-old girl, I know if I had... The, like, if I knew someone like that, I'd feel so cool. I'd feel like I had connections. I mean, at that age, you really can't help but feel like almost a sense of invincibility, too. So I really can't fault her for doing this because I know I'd do the same thing. I'd be right, right. there with her. Yeah, I just think it's so normal. Um, So unfortunately, later, she was found in her apartment dead after having a glass of wine with her killer. The kettle was still on. And there was instant coffee on the counter when the investigators got there. They say she was likely killed close to midnight on Valentine's Day. That's just... I mean, it's so sad to think how thrown off she probably was. Like, she was enjoying herself, having a glass of wine, gonna make coffee. I mean, it sounds like a great night to me. And she was just hanging out with someone who she thought was harmless. She didn't have really really any reason to think he wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean... Of course, like, all crime scenes are incredibly sad, but there's just something about the fact that she was just being so hospitable to him and she still met such a gruesome fate. It literally makes my stomach turn over. But, thankfully, by March 3rd, police finally focused their investigations on Randall. Let's get him. Let's get him. They go to Randall's landlord And they ask about him, and she's like, yeah, he's kind of weird, but she had always assumed that he was harmless. Um, He's apparently always, like, playing football with her kid and talking about his glory days on the Packers, which, like, come on, Randall, get over it. Yeah. Packers for five minutes. You didn't even play in a real game. 428th pick. Let me just say that one more time. 428th pick. So she gives the police his call logs. Um, The police also search his apartment with his consent because he's a moron and they take a few things into evidence. One particularly important thing that they take is the athletic tape. Um, Very cool fact about this athletic tape that they took. They were somehow able to find through forensics because they're all so smart. (laughs) Smarter than me. They were able to figure out like the exact that that all of the tapes used to bind the victims were taken from that exact role. Like not even just like same brand. It was that exact role. That's something that they were able to prove. 
Anyway, so when they're searching his apartment, he's acting like super weird to the police when they pick up the athletic tape. He's like, why do you need that? I only use that for sports. It's just for sports. It's not evidence of anything. It's fine. And they're like, whoa, okay, big guy. If it's so innocent, why don't you just calm down? I mean, he really just knows how to play to his strengths. I mean, I bet he thought he was being so smooth and not sketchy. Like, Randall, give it up. Literally. So then the, the police bring in Beth, the woman who served survived the attack in the office building. Um, and they have her identify him. And she does. I mean, that's just who Beth is. That is who Beth will continue to be. I just it, expect nothing less from her. Sorry. Yeah. And um, the nail in his coffin ends up being those phone logs that his landlord turned over. Oh, yeah. Um. Randall had apparently used a call card at payphones in the areas near where the murders took place. And basically, he mapped out his involvements that way to the police. I mean, okay, one moron again and again and again. But who was he calling? It's actually so gross. So he would like call his sister after a bunch of the murders and just be so cool and calm and collected and chat about everyday things with her. Or he would call women and flirt with him, with them, like women from his past. Yeah. Investigators and people who really know this case say that he is responsible for as many as 44 murders. I mean... Yeah. In June 1981, he went on trial for Sherry Hull's murder. The jury found him guilty of that crime and a slew of additional charges, earning him a life sentence plus 90 years. I mean, peace out, Randall. Hope you rot. Literally. (laughs) He will. Investigators linked Woodfield to other robberies an estimated 60 rapes and more murders, perhaps as many as 44, like I said, along the I-5. These cases would not go to trial, however, because, I mean, they were just like, he's so firmly tucked behind bars. We're not wasting one more penny on this guy. Good. I mean, peace out again. I mean, I can't say it enough. Bye. But what I found was, what I found that was like most interesting was that most serial killers have a cooling off period. And they have an MO. They have a pattern. I mean, it's what we hear about so much when he, when we hear about cases like these. And Randall just didn't. And he would go between murders and robberies and not always killing his victims. I just don't get this guy. Yeah, I know. He was simply a freak. Honestly, <laughs> like, I don't know how else to describe him. <laughs> um, male guards would say that he kept to himself and he would just like be in his cell all day but when the female guards were asked they were like oh no like when we walk by he like fixes his hair and like come on dude chill none of the female guards who know you are interested in you in the slightest his psych profile reads male caucasian has a macho image of self recently divorced or separated from lover recently released from penal or mental institution would be described as a nice guy and would not be suspected by friends or neighbors, latent homosexual tendencies, motivation in all incidents is primarily sexual and is a loner. I mean, it always gets me how accurate these psych profiles are. I mean, like, that's right down to a T who he was. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. 
Okay, wait, I can't stop. I could not stop thinking about this as you were telling me this case, but I could be wrong, but isn't he the serial killer who like oiled himself up and took pictures for Playgirl? Yeah, he actually did that. Um, And they, they were like, okay, yeah, sure. You could be for the boy next door profile. And I think he uh. probably felt like a blow to his eagle, ego. And um, also Anne Rule, she writes um, books about cases like this. She wrote a book on him and said that his hands were small in it. And he got so mad and tried to sue her for it. And basically the judge was like, no, 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 Randall, sit back down. Good. Get him, Anne. That is Randall Woodfield for you. Oh, God. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at The Chalkline Pod. Or on Twitter at The Chalkline Pod. And be sure to check out our website. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story.